0: Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexperts and the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78. Available now by subscribing at trexpertsplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. Here's a sneak peek. Um, Shatner is a guest star
1: in one of the episodes. Yeah, he's yeah. one of
0: the villains, right?
1: Uh, yes. Roy freaked out because he didn't want to the association between Sequest and Star Trek. Oh, uh, man. man. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, look, for me, Shatter's one of the great ham actors of all time. Of course. You know, he's just spectacular to watch. And you should be pleased he's here. He's not playing Captain Kirk. You know, but uh, it was... You know, you had to placate that. And then the earthquake, uh, that
2: big uh, Northridge earthquake... Yeah. You know, it shut us down for a couple of days. We came
3: back and we're shooting... Uh, we're setting up to shoot on, on stage and somebody hits the
1: lights for the production and there's stuff floating in the air. You know, the big particles of whatever. I don't know what it is. And then the, the door stage door opens and guys in hazmat suits come in.
4: Oh yeah. Oh no. oh no. And
1: I and I they won't tell me what they're looking for. Oh, everything's yeah. fine. So why are you uh-huh. in that suit? Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I call Tom there, and they won't put me through to him. So I shut down the show for the day. I said, we're done. We're going to stop for the day because I'm not going to be a part of poisoning everybody here. Mm, was- and I got called on the carpet for that. You guys should be giving me an award for this. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to get cancer. I cleared the place. But it um, it was an interesting experience.
0: It's, I remember it, being on the junket for it, and uh, they we made a big deal out of this isn't science fiction. This is science fact. And, you know, <laughs> basically, and, and, uh, and uh, Roy is um, he's like Jack Cousteau. <laughs> it's like, what? That's well, Roy wanted to be. And we, you know, I, we try to. You know,
1: sort of feather that at the end of the show with uh, Bob Ballard saying, you know, yeah. thirty seconds on something that's actually means something." <laughs> right, right, right. And, you know, uh, there were people on the show couldn't stand having him there. We're not, we're not doing public television. This is an educational. Uh, it's it, it, you know the battles.
4: Yeah. It, it's a, it's a sad thing that uh, that Scheider was uh, was. Uh, leery of uh, being on TV because that now that stigma doesn't exist anymore. But you know, it was huge
0: back then.
4: Oh, I know I know it was. But, uh, you know, huge actors are doing TV
0: now. Yeah, De Niro uh, just announced yeah. as, uh, was announced as a lead in a Netflix series. Yeah. Did, but that's, that's George Shiger's with... new show debuting yeah. FUBAR. Did, did you oh deal God. with um, Spielberg at all? Did he know he had this TV show on the air? Like, was he ever <laughs> uh, yeah, involved?
1: I, I, I didn't deal with him much. He was in Poland. He came back. He was, uh, he devoted some time to us a little bit, but not mm-hmm. to the degree you you, you would like. Um, right. I remember the first time he came into the writers' room and we're talking, and he's staring at Bob Engels. <laughs> he said, "You were in the show last night."
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> good job. The, so he was uh, watching it. That's good. So it wasn't commensurate with what he was getting paid.
1: No, but you know what? <laughs> he he's a guy. Who, it's it's hard to argue with him because he he literally knows everything about. Yeah. Him.
3: yeah,
1: He just does. I mean, it's a compendium of, of knowledge that. Maybe Scorsese knows more. I don't know, but were maybe. there
4: were there ever any edicts to shoot on location in the dive restaurant in Century City?
1: Uh, <laughs> Spielberg <laughs> and <laughs> Castlebridge restaurant. Happen. That didn't happen. They,
0: uh... That's really funny. <laughs> and good fries. Um, did we? And then and then Roy had had enough, and and Michael Ironside comes in for the last season. Were you? I had you had favorite. enough? I, gone I, by I, I was
1: just there for the first, I, I was there for the first season. I moved it to Florida Ended the second I, season and then I, I went off to do other things.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think, you know, It. I felt like the people that uh, I'm, I'm guessing Amblin, uh, the executives, insisted on doing the show so they could walk to the set from uh, the Amblin offices. Sure. It should, they had a great facility in Florida that wasn't being used. It had all the things you want in a show about being underwater that you could access within 10 minutes of where you are, right. certainly within the zone, and shoot underwater. There's a place called Wiki I don't know if you guys know that, but there's a mermaid show there. It's crystal clear spring waters, and they have a theater underwater with, you know, glass that must span 30, 40 feet and 12 wow. and high looking out onto the water. It, you could have done so much there, but they didn't want to do that. You know, it was uh, it's a lot of hubris on the part of a lot of people who wear suits
0: and ties. Yeah, that happened, That's for sure. So subscribe today at trexpursplus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the Rockets.
1: Mark A. Altman,
4: Darren Doctorman, Ashley Edward Miller. Three fans who became professionals and then became Trexperts. Inglorious Trexperts.
0: Listen wherever you find podcasts or go to trexpertsplus.com. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, one of the co hosts of Inglorious Trexperts. And if you're a Trek fan, you owe it to yourself to pick up the 50-year mission, the complete, uncensored oral history of Star Trek. It's available wherever you buy books, digital or audio. And speaking of books, check out my new book about the making of John Wick. They shouldn't have killed his dog. Also available wherever you buy your books. You see a pattern happening here? Well, what are you waiting for? Get on it. They're here. Yes, indeed. Your favorite 430 movie hosts are all back with an all-new season of curating fantasy theme weeks on the 430 Movie Podcast. Join Darren Docterman, Ashley Edward Miller, Stephen Melching, and myself, Mark A. Altman, as we bring you the latest and sometimes not-so-greatest in movie curation. It's the 430 Movie. It's fun. It's informative. It's awesome. And until then, Eyewitness News starts now.
4: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman And this is Darren Dockerman And this is Ashley Miller
0: And we are the Inglorious Treksperts and today, they're here. It's the visitors. They've been here for 40 years since or, they debuted. Or the Lonely Man. Yeah. Or, or, or the Lonely Man, the Incredible <laughs> Hulk. Or maybe it's the Bionic Man. It's uh, there, There's a whole
4: world that is opening up to us right now.
0: They all come from the pen of the same man. That man is Kenneth Johnson. And he is here with us today on The Treadsports in a special encore presentation of our Deck 78 episode in which we sat down with Kenneth Johnson to talk about his incredible career, really half of it, because we stopped after B and didn't get to, uh, the rest of it because it was going on so long. We were going to have him back on the show. But um, we we're so we loved this episode so much. We loved it so much that we thought, you know what? Give those people who haven't subscribed yet to Deck 78 a taste, a taste of what you're missing. This is the kind of stuff you get every other week on deck 78 and you're missing out if you're not a subscriber. So we're going to give you this this week. We're going to give it to you because that's the kind of people we are, but we're not going to do it again. No. We're not going to do it again. Never. So you need to subscribe because your money, you say, why don't I give you my, okay. First of all, you go to Starbucks. How much do you spend on a cup of coffee? I don't know because I don't drink coffee, but it's a lot. <laughs> <for> sure. So, <laughs> 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 but here's the, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We use that money, you know what we use that money for? We use that to pay our sound engineer. We use that to pay our our web hosting. We use that to mix the 430 movie too. So you are supporting the Treksports Podcast Network by um, you're, you're putting that money. You know what, I'm gonna tell you something. I, you. I, I subscribe to the Treksports Plus. I subscribe myself and I am here. I don't need to subscribe to hear it because I hear myself, but I do it anyway because I wanna support what we're doing. And I got to tell you, because we're bringing you stuff like Kenneth Johnson, who's awesome. We were just in awe. You'll you'll hear it when you listen to the episode. You will be, I too.
3: Mean,
0: I mean, <laughs> Darren and Ken Johnson talking about War of the Worlds. Uh, Ashley uh, talking about The Incredible Hulk. You know, and of course, Ashley knows a little something about Marvel, having written Thor and X-Men First Class, among other things. And uh, I talked to him about V because I was in high school watching V. And I would talk to my friends all the time about those episodes after they aired. And now I got to talk to Ken Johnson about it, so <laughs> the hell with all of you. Le- no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, and uh, it, it, he's really, he's so erudite, so such an interesting guy. And one of the things I think you'll see, um, he talks a lot about the influence of a lot of the books he's read. Mm-hmm. And certainly for any aspiring writers or um, uh, people who wanna work in the industry, this is such an important lesson. It's like, yeah, in you know, just even if you're writing science fiction, doesn't mean you need to be only reading science fiction. Your diet could be much more diverse. Uh, he talks about the influence of Les Miserables on um, uh, the Incredible Hulk. He talks about the influence of It could, Can't Happen Here, uh, Sinclair Lewis, on V. Um, he talks about um, you know reading Popular Mechanics and how that influenced Six Million Dollar Man. No, he doesn't talk about that. But <laughs> but but, I just like but, to say but
5: that Les Miserables is uh, is my pen name. <laughs>
0: You're making me miserable, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Miller. So, uh, guys, uh, before we get to um, Ken Johnson, just uh, I know when we got off, we were all pretty giddy about how that interview went. What was the highlight for you, Darren?
4: Oh, just uh, just sharing the experience of uh, listening to that uh, recording of uh, of Orson Welles is. Uh, uh, War of the Worlds over and over again, and uh, and and you know, uh, playing with a uh, an ancient reel-to-reel tape recorder and making uh, making my own productions. Uh, and I, he was telling the story of my childhood when he was telling the story of his. And it's it's just such a great sort of connection.
0: And actually, the reason I'm talking so much now is because I barely talked during the show. I mean, you know, literally. <laughs> You'll you, see. You, you yeah. Start, you you ask him a question and he just goes on for the next twenty minutes. And it's all fascinating. What was the highlight for you, Ash?
5: You know, I I think it was um, when he was telling us about how quickly they cast and prepped for V to shoot that sucker, that miniseries, and have it ready for sweeps. Uh, I mean, he wasn't living my my childhood, he was living my trauma. I mean, my PTSD, I felt like, okay, so right next, man, 10 days, that was pretty bad. Actually, no. What, what is incredibly badass is pulling together that entire limited series in two and a half weeks. You, you know,
0: I, I, I'm sure people can appreciate it. But for all of us who work in television, it's even more remarkable. I, I just uh, that story just floored me. I, I mean, I, I, you know, we would talk about it because it was a huge phenomenon. People have no idea how huge V was if they weren't alive back then. But it was everywhere, and everyone was talking about it. It was a monster miniseries. And, um, and uh, I'm talking about the original, of course. And, um, and uh, But when he told us that basically they were desperate to get this on the air and they had two weeks to prep this thing, that's insane. Yeah. Something of this huge magnitude. with The amount of visual effects, the huge ensemble cast, It's extraordinary. So next time we're complaining to the network that we don't have enough time or enough money, we'll think of Ken Johnson. And we'll still complain, but uh, we'll think of Ken Johnson. What would Ken Johnson do? That's the question. That's right. So, well, let's find out what Ken Johnson would do as we go to um, our interview with Ken Johnson exclusively for Deck 78 here on the Treksprits. Well, we're so happy to have Kenneth Johnson with us today. It it, it was actually the 40th anniversary of V that inspired this conversation. But obviously, he's had such an incredible TV career and feature film career, not only as a writer, showrunner, and director, although they didn't call you showrunner back in the day, but that's what you were. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I kind of want to ask you, going back to when you were at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, did you Uh. think... Uh, did you ever conceive of a career in entertainment? Was that what you were thinking, or what? What, what were you, you know, in college? What was sort of the plan?
2: Well, uh, of course, I saw a, a, a career in entertainment. Um, I, um, uh, when I was um, uh, in the ninth grade, I think uh, the summer before my ninth grade year, uh, I saved up and bought a tape recorder, a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, weighed about 3,000 pounds and was the size of a suitcase, you know? Sure. Uh, and I uh, started to, at the same time I was reading stuff and I came across uh, the script that Howard Koch had written for Orson Welles. Uh, for, War of the Worlds. For the War of the Worlds, the 1939 yep. radio broadcast that scared the pants off of uh, millions of people. Uh, and I said, "This is really cool." And I've got a tape recorder, and um, so I decided to get a bunch of my ninth-grade friends together in my living room. Oh my um, gosh! And we did our recording of of War of the Worlds. Um, I, of course, saved the Orson Welles role for myself, of course. <laughs> and um, uh, and we we put it together, and it was uh, and it was really fun. We had music and sound effects and all the stuff that you could do, you know, in your living room. Um, and um, uh, and I, uh, sh- I let one of my uh, teachers know about it at, uh, at school uh, in my freshman year there. And uh, she said, this is, this is really great. I'd, I'd love to hear, uh, let's play it for the class. So I ended up playing it for her. And then the other teachers in the school, it was a small uh, uh, public school in, in rural Maryland outside of Washington, DC. Um, and, uh, and I ended up doing, playing it for about three or four of the different classes there. And so pretty soon I got to be known as the drama guy. Oh my no. goodness. And, oh, and I have to confess as my wife Susie ribs me about, I was also known as the kid who carried the briefcase. Right. And, and, uh, well, I, I just thought of it a long time before everybody else did. I mean, now, you know, you got the kids with the rollers and the backpacks and all that. And in those days, everybody was just carrying around piles of books in their arms. And uh, my uh, stepfather was throwing away an old briefcase one day. And I said, can I have that? That would be good to do. So anyway, so I was the kid who carried the briefcase, but also the sci-fi guy. And, uh, um and that sort of got me interested in in theater a bit and um in my in my um sophomore year a year later uh for the christmas show they were going to do a performance of a christmas carol uh by dickens and they asked me if i would play the leading role of scrooge and i said Sure. You know, and and we did the play and uh, we rehearsed it and it was pretty good. It was sort of the the normal high school version of uh, Christmas Carol and it was good and it all hit all the points. But at the end, it just sort of petered out, you know, and I, I went to my drama coach and I said, you know, I think it needs something more at the end. Uh, that just sort of puts it all together and he, and I told her that I had found this old recording uh on a on an on a record that Noel Coward had done where he had done the, the story. And at the end he summed it all up in this wonderful little piece. And I said, how about at the end uh when the curtain closes after the play, I step out on the stage and I do this little little soliloquy piece to just put it all together. And and she said that that would be really wonderful. Okay. So I said that's great. That's great. And I got to thinking it needs a little music, though. You know. Now you see what's you see what's happening already. Now I didn't yeah. realize this at the time, but looking back, I can see. Oh, I was being a director and a producer, yeah. and uh, uh, and I went to the choral department. the The woman who was ran who ran that, and um, I said, "What? what are the, what's the music you're doing at the at the Christmas show?" Um, and she told showed me and you know, all the stuff, and and I said, "Oh, okay. Let's take this one that you're going to do. Oh, Holy Night." And when the curtain closes uh, start singing, but not the words just do, 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 do. Okay. And I said, and you do that and I'll step out and I'll do my little piece. And, uh, and you should start singing the words at this point. because I, <laughs> I could read music and I knew you know where, where they should come in. So Okay, so we do our play. The curtain closes. I step out on the stage of our old gymnasium, which is where we did it, uh, and, and it was it was a blue spotlight on me. We had one spotlight in the school, and outside it was snowing. Honest to God, and and I and they so they, sta- they start with the do 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 do. Okay, and I start saying, Well, it was a Christmas for you. And I may tell you that Tiny Tim did not die. He's alive and growing stronger day by day. If I-. And I go on and on. And I time it out so that I get to the end where I say, and so is Tiny Tim observed, God oh bless us, everyone. And at that point, the 60 voice chorus goes, fall on your knees. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, would, I tried, went backstage, I was leaning against the wall. My little heart was going pity pat, you know? And I thought, oh my God, I have found my home. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> have to be, I have to be in the theater and that's the moment that i decided my my the die was cast in 10th grade for that christmas and uh uh and then when i um so i got involved in the drama club more and more and the coach uh said you know you really ought to go to carnegie tech which was what carnegie mellon was called in those days carnegie institute of technology uh people would say oh you go to carnegie tech you're an engineer and i go oh, no, i'm in theater and they go Oh really? Well, uh, that's (laughs) you know they did. Most people in the world didn't know that Carnegie Tech even then was one of the premier drama schools in the country. Now it was (laughs) only it was only theater guys. There was there was no film, no TV. It was uh, strictly learning to live and work in the professional theater. Um, And I uh, I I looked at all the different classes I could take. I could major in writing or or or, uh, lighting design or costume design or acting or any of those things. Uh, or, But I saw that in, if you took the directing option, you got everybody's classes. And it was really by far the hardest. And you ha- also you had to audition to get in. Um, and they auditioned about 1,500 people. Uh, and I was one of the 94 that uh, was admitted in the freshman class that year. And, um, uh, and at the, the first week of our freshman class, the head of the department, a guy named Ted Hoffman, had us all sitting in the theater the main stage theater and he said okay look at the person on your right and on your left one of them won't be here next year not because they want don't want to be but because we don't want them you know? <laughs> sounds like
0: the paper chase
2: yeah, right. well, yeah, it, was, it was. but he was right i'm telling you four years later out of the 94 only 22 of us graduated mm. um and it was because they weren't as interested in your grades as you, as they were in your professionalism, you know, cause right. they, the idea of you know, the freshman year at Carnegie was to either beat the theater into you or out of you. And, um, uh, and I still, when I'm talking to my film students nowadays, the very first thing I ask them when, when we get together is, do you love this business? And they all go, Oh yeah, yeah. And I say, no, 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 you're not hearing me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you You love this business. Like you can't, breathe if you're you're underwater unless you're doing it because if you don't love it that much choose another career because there's too there's too much rejection and uh but so carnegie was only a theater school but in my in the first week of my freshman year i i happened to have the, the opportunity to meet a guy who was a senior not in their drama department he was in business his name was bill pence and uh, and Bill was a big man on campus, I discovered. He ran the school newspaper. He was the editor. He ran two or three other of the major organizations at the college. Uh, and he also ran this thing called the Film Arts Society. Oh, my God. Is this
0: the Bill Pence who r- ran the Telluride Film Festival? This is the Bill Pence. Who oh, my gosh. The Michelin- what a great guy and yes. he just passed away last year
2: yes he did we were we were with his, his his uh his wife Stella in New York Susie and I were just a couple of months ago uh just just before he died actually and uh uh no it was just after he died yeah it was uh, it was grim and uh, uh and they were, they were wonderful people and they were they were sort of bellwethers and and beacons for me both of them but Bill uh I had always been a movie fan but Bill introduced me to the cinema because of the film art society every week on Thursdays we would screen three screenings of a classic film from around the world uh, half of them were english speaking the other half were not uh, a lot of them were silent originals that you couldn't see in those days you know you couldn't get chaplin to look at in those days or a, a lot of buster keaton or harold lloyd And uh, and so I really uh, embraced that world, too. And when Bill was graduating, I said, well, who's going to take over the film society? Because it was just a one man operation or two with both of us. I I ran the projectors and, you know, Bill did the busy work. Right. Uh, the the stuff, the booking and all. And he said, well, I thought you were going to take it over, Kenny. And I said, ah, I don't know enough am film to do it. He said, yes, you do. If I, if I said intolerance, you'd know what I was talking about. I said, Bill, if you said intolerance, I would think of my mother, you know, and, uh, and the anti-Semitic household I grew up in and the bigotry I had to live with uh, and somehow managed to dodge that bullet. But anyway, Bill convinced me that I could do it and I did and I took it over and I put myself through college uh running not only film arts but other uh, film societies around the country um and uh, and bill meantime went on to uh uh not only to work in the air force he had to do his, his two years of service at the time but he also helped me get my first movie made because when i was uh uh in my senior year i said bill i've seen all of these you know 300 or more of the great movies i can talk about film all the time but i really need to make something but there's no equipment there's no film teachers there's no you know this isn't a film school uh and he said what do you need and I said well I need a camera I need film and he said okay how much and uh and he borrowed a camera from the air force from for me and uh 10,000 feet of tri-x negative 16 millimeter uh and said, okay okay go do it and yeah, uh, sure. I did, and uh, uh, and I created a little uh, 30-minute thriller kind of thing, a noirish kind of piece, uh, silent with a film with a score. We had uh, one of my uh, Carnegie musician friends put together the orchestra from the music department. So I we really had a scoring session, all this stuff. Um, And that movie uh, I look at nowadays, and I say. God, what a great twenty-minute film it would be, you know. <laughs> but there's still a lot of a lot of stuff in it that I, I that still are impressive as I look at them today. And I could see, and I guess other people could too, because that's what first got me hired in New York was uh, being able to say, "Okay, I did this on a shoestring and uh, and on my own," and uh, uh, and that got my toe in the door in in uh, in New York, uh, and that's. So I, that's how I got started in Carnegie. So I had, I had the the great benefit of having that all that, that uh, like what Godard and Truffaut were seeing in the Paris Cinematheque. That's what I was witnessing uh, courtesy of Bill and my dear friend. I've, I've always called Bill the godfather of my career because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I ahead. am so glad to hear that Kenny, because
0: I, I'm a huge fan of Bill's. I'm a, 16 or 18 year veteran of the Telluride Film Festival, ah. um, and I met my wife at the Telluride Film Festival. <laughs> so I'm very grateful to Bill. I remember the last year that he was there, which was one of my last years going, and yeah. uh, what you know, at the end of an era, it was. It it was such a remarkable, it still is, but a remarkable festival. And he he was uh, him and Stella were just remarkable people, and this story is just incredible. <laughs> although uh, i am just uh, i'm so delighted to hear it that's 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 great
2: well i, I it's, it's no it's it's well as you can hear from the description that i've given it's it's not uh and a, a small thing that I, I happened to encounter Bill that first week of my freshman year, and we got so close so immediately, and uh, and the effect that he has had on my life, and I've always, I, every time I was with him, I would remind him of that, and he'd go, oh, come on, come on. And I said, no, 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 because Bill, you know, Bill, you know, he understated, kind of laid-back, middle Western guy, you know, and um, um, and it's uh, it was, it was, I was, I was blessed. I was absolutely yeah, blessed. Yeah. Well, we <laughs>
0: Glad to hear that you uh, didn't convince your the other students and your teachers that New Jersey was being invaded by marshals. <laughs> <laughs> <No, So.
3: laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like, Rushmore was
4: based on you. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, in ways I guess it was. <laughs> See, I, I I'm I'm shocked at how much of uh, of my history you've stolen from me. Um, Because I I, I did uh, things very similar to that. Uh, I, you know, I uh, very early on got uh, a record of uh, uh, Wells' broadcast and uh, and it. It, uh, it transfixed me. And I had, I had my dad's reel-to-reel tape recorder and made recordings with as many friends as I could find, uh, which were very few. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, uh, you know, uh, we know now that in the early yeah. years of the 20th century, this world was being watched, watched closely watched by, by, by intelligence, intelligence greater, than, greater man's than man's. And, man's. and yet, and yet man as mortal as mortal his, own. his own.
2: By God, I can't re- believe I remember that line. Yes, yeah. it's, it's true. It's stuck. It's all yes. stuck there.
4: And it's yeah. it's it's, a, it's amazing, and just hearing your stories about that just thank fills you. me with surprise <laughs> and delight. So,
2: thank well, you. So, I later on I got to meet uh, uh, Howard Koch Jr. Hog Koch, he calls himself now, yeah. and then I told him uh, I I've never met his dad. His dad had died by the time I came out here, but um, uh, I told him what an impact his father had had, you know, on my life. And and one of the things that I wanted to, to point out though too was that. While getting that sort of a Cinematheque education from film arts and, and college, I was also getting uh, all of the Stanislavski theatrical sure. training about how to work with actors on the boards. And I discovered that that's, that's one thing that a lot of film directors out here, even some of the great ones, uh, never are able to do. You know, they right, just don't right. know how to talk to an actor. And I it always fascinates me when I'm working with an actor for the first time and I say, OK, so tell me what your process is. Oh and their eyes get wide they go, so the right process my god he knows about acting <laughs> you know and uh, uh and so i i i was really blessed in that regard too that i had not only the film uh, education but also the education in stanislavski and uh and um and all of that
0: Well, i want to ask you because when you went to go work at the factory aka universal <laughs> most of the writers there were not directors you had a very interesting career path because you had been directing and then became a writer and uh, I, again i'll use the term showrunner even though a head writer but uh great and a creator but um and you were directing but that was very uncommon for the writers of the era i,
2: I was the youngest writer director producer at the universal studios at the time and doubtlessly the lowest paid. <laughs> and, uh, um, but uh, but but it's when when um, uh, when I first came to California, uh, and because before I came to California, I, I did two and a half, almost three years uh, as producer of the Mike Douglas Show, which was in those days in the late '60s, early '70s, uh, the major that it was it started out being the only night daytime ninety-minute talk variety music show. Sure. Uh, Which I got seduced into doing. I didn't want to go there. I wanted to leave New York, where I made a bit of a name for myself and done some good TV stuff and dramas and stuff. Uh, But uh, I was seduced by this guy named Roger Ailes, who was this this young firebrand, only a couple of years older than me, who had just taken over the Douglas Show. And I said, Roger, uh, they asked me to meet him, and I said, I don't want to do that. And I said, Roger, thank you, but no. But uh, but uh, but I want to do film. He said. I'm going to let you do film. That's what I want to do. I want to do a lot more film on the Douglas show. Now and you can do whatever you want in film. I guarantee you, I'll get behind that hundred percent. As long as we get our 90 minutes live every day on the air. Wow. Oh, okay. <laughs>
3: so <laughs> so I, I,
2: I, I took that gig and was a producer. Roger was executive producer. Uh, and then a year and a half or so later, it was in 78, Nixon came on the show because everybody in the world came onto the Mike Douglas show. Because yeah. uh, it was the, the great voice. We had an audience of 90 million people a week on that show. Um, and uh, Nixon came on the show and Roger grabbed him and pulled him into his office and said, I can get you elected. Nixon said, well, how can you do that, Roger? And Roger, <laughs> and Roger said, you need a media advisor. Nixon said, what's a media advisor, Roger? <laughs> you know, and, 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 and it was a term that Roger had created, you know, and hmm. Nixon hired him and uh and i was just about at at to hear with the douglas show and ready to had one foot out the door when Roger said, look, I got to go. I'm going with Nixon. I'm going to, with him. To, and, and I told Westinghouse that you should take over the show. I said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go make movies. Yeah. And uh, but but he said, look, get the, it's a big credit. Take the big credit. You'll be the youngest executive producer in the, in the television industry. Wow. And uh, and then you can t- take that to the coast. And so I did that and the show. with kept climbing. We were in. 230 markets by the time I left the show Um, and which was more than NBC or ABC had. Um, uh, But so I came to California and, and I said, okay, here I am ready to make movies. And they said, how about a talk show, Kenny? Yeah, right. because so I was so I was the kid who carried the briefcase. I was the uh sci-fi <laughs> the, the drama kid, uh and I I had visions of uh, and, I, and I said, No, 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 I'm not the talk show guy, you know. I that was that was just to make a living. Um and uh and it took me a while. It, it was Botchko, actually, who had been a classmate with me, Stephen Botchko at Carnegie. Uh, actually I left the Film Arts Society to Stephen to run when I left. Wow. That's how close <laughs> we were. And he had already gotten his foot in the door in Universal and was a fledgling writer there and um and asked uh, and said look you need to write and i said i don't write i don't i don't (laughs) like writing that's hard you know director (laughs) hey that's easy i love that but he said kenny actors can do bit parts and work their way up writers can write on spec until you sell something if you're a director they either give you the money to do it or they don't and I saw a quote from uh, um, uh, Chris uh, Christopher Nolan the other day who said the only reason he ever started writing was because he knew nobody gave him any money unless it was his own thing and he could control it. So yeah. that's how mm-hmm. Chris started writing. It was the same pattern. And uh, and eventually, and I discovered I could write and write pretty fast. And uh, so I became a prolific writer of unproduced screenplays. <laughs> um, most of that most stealing my life yeah well, you, you, know, you know the you know the pain it's, 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 it's don't go into this if you're, if you're you're faint of heart uh but uh but uh, Botchko gave one of them one of them, one of my scripts to harv bennett who was then producing the had just started up with the six million dollar man um and I went in and met Harv, and he and I hit it off, and, uh, uh, and he asked me if I had any ideas, and I suggested The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, yeah. and, and he said, you, uh, you mean like a bionic woman? And I said, yeah. he yeah. said, oh, yeah. What are going to ask now?
3: now? We don't have to go that fast. I'm not only in this thing
1: to win. A dangerous desert race in search of international secrets. One out of ten drivers gets through out your arm. That's our only chance of winning. There's no way... That route's too dangerous. What's well, so we can win? If she loses the race. Jamie,
6: it'll explode. She loses her life. The Bionic Woman. Wednesday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain on ABC.
2: And so, <laughs> you want to write it? I said, yeah, I'd like to write it. Uh, I just spent the... I just spent the last six months sitting in the Santa Monica library writing four scripts that didn't go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to write something to get paid for. Uh, so Harv uh, brought me in and uh, I, I wrote the script, which ended up being a two parter. We expanded it. I was so excited. I said, do I get paid a second time if I make it longer? He said, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and, and, and Harv, I guess, spotted my chops early on and and took me under his wing, took me into the editing room with him. And we just got to know each other more. And very quickly he said, uh, um, why don't Why don't you join me as a producer on The Douglas Show? And I, on on The uh, Six Million Dollar Man. And I said, how about I join you as a writer-director? <laughs> you know, and Harv said, um, Kenny, let me explain to you how television works, okay? And <laughs> uh, in, in television, it's the producer who hires the writer and hires the director. And I said, oh. <laughs> I it. <laughs> okay, I'll take that job and and the frustration that I had was that um uh I, I ended up doing so much writing well you know you write something you create a, and you sell a pilot and everybody gets excited because oh that's so great you sold a pilot but what they don't realize is that's also the bad news you sold a pilot and now you have to do a series right and uh and 22 hours as opposed to you know And uh, so it was very frustrating for me because I wanted to be on the stage. I wanted to be directing. I wanted to be with my cast and my crew. And, uh, and while I did have the opportunity to hire myself, it was very hard to hire yourself to be the captain when you're already the admiral. And you've got to make sure the fleet is sailing in the right direction. And you've got, you know, scripts that you've got to prep and get going and, and come up with. And, and then the ones that are shooting now, (laughs) and then the ones that you're doing post on, uh, and it's like living in a garbage disposal. And, uh, (laughs) and, Uh, and then quickly they spun Bionic Woman off uh, as a separate series, which I thought, oh my God, you know, it was hard enough to uh, be a, a producing writer, producer on one series at a time. Now I was doing two and uh, only thanks to uh, a, a lot of talented people that I brought in around me like Jim Parriott and uh, Nick Correa and uh, and a lot of the folks that, uh, that, uh, that I helped to sort of be, that were protégés that I, I kept training them all to be producers so that I could leave that in their lap so that I can go there. <laughs> and, uh, and so the bottom the bottom line quickly to cut to it is that if somebody said Kenny you can't write anymore you must you must only direct from now on I'd go oh that's too bad which way did you say? It? <laughs> yeah that's
0: right <laughs> were you aware when you met with Harv of what um a pop culture phenomena six million dollar man already was and
2: well, you know, I, I, I had seen it at home with my kids uh, who were who were young at the time. And I thought, OK, that's an interesting show. I don't quite understand why he runs in slow motion if he's <laughs> supposed to be running fast. But, oh, yeah, I see. Because when you try to really make him run fast, it really looks like the Keystone Cops and right. looks pretty stupid. Uh, and so there were some of the uh, those um, tropes that they had fallen into that I said, OK, well, I get it. Uh, so I was aware of it, but uh, but you know I was never really interested very much at all in television. My my focus had always been in longer form and in, in movies and that sort of thing. And uh, and and I didn't look down on television like so many of my classmates did at Carnegie. If you mentioned uh, to film or God forbid television, <laughs> this is a theater school. We don't talk about television, you <laughs> know. Uh, and it was like that. Rod Serling came, I remember to to and gave a, a lecture once while I was in college there, and uh, and I, there were only about two of us that knew anything about to ask him as questions because oh, nobody else was into any kind of television or whatever. But I I had always been interested more in long form, so I hadn't paid too much attention to television. The only the only show that I ever watched with any rapidity and con- consistency uh, as my daughter katie was growing up uh, was uh, the simpsons susie and, and katie and i always would manage to find time to watch the simpsons uh because of the writing and, and you know and all of that but um uh no it was uh, uh it was but at the same time uh harv what harv convinced me of he said you know kenny doing episodic television writing producing directing to episodic television is the greatest training in the world for making movies, or for waging war, <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> and, uh, and I realized that that he was he was right. So the uh, the early years, the bionic years at Universal, really was for me like graduate school with pay. You know, uh, and it was the same for for Steve Bachko and my other dear Steve, Steve Cannell, uh, mm-hmm. who was also uh, we we were sort of we became sort of the class of 1980. As a matter of fact, the Writers Guild did an article about us at one point. Uh, then <laughs> the, the two of them and also Bellasario, uh, uh, who were you know we were all sort of the Young Turks at the time there, and uh, and we all loved each other. And they, the two of them, Steve Cannell and and Bachko, both really helped me to get my foot in. The the door there and, and give me some assignments. And, uh, uh, and I wrote a couple of scripts for Steve Cannell and, uh, uh, and then I said, how about a directing shot, Steve? And he said, well, I don't know if I can do that, but he did. And mm-hmm. yeah, so it was great. And, uh, uh, and I was able to finally parlay that into, into uh, the producership and, uh, and which went on and on and on and on for seven years there at Universal.
0: Wow. Well, it seems like Universal, there's a reason they called it the factory. You know, you were using the people they had under contract. It was short shoes. You were mo- most people were mostly shooting on the back lot. You know, it wasn't for the most part very inventive, creative TV. And yet somehow, you know, you and Harve managed to create these shows which have stood the test of time. People still know the bionic woman, they know. Bigfoot then. Bigfoot's back in a special two-hour adventure of the $6 million
1: man and the bionic woman. Bigfoot, right after the Hardy Boys.
0: Sunday night starting at 7 on ABC. You know, they know. (laughs) I mean, these are all things that you I mean you got and if you look at what like Glenn Larson did with the second TV movie or what they did with the cyborg adaptation on the first they're not really that watchable they're not fun you guys seem to get the fact that this could be cool and fun and interesting and you seem to avoid all the pitfalls of the quote-unquote factory at Universal where so many of those shows are unwatchable now
2: well that's it I mean the, the motto at Universal was we don't want it good we want it Thursday yeah. You know, and and uh, and that's true. That's what we we were always under 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 tremendous pressure to make the shows as cheap as we possibly could, so that Universal could make more money. And um, uh, and it's funny because when I first started producing six Mill, I thought, wow, five hundred thousand dollars per episode. God, what I can do with five hundred grand. Well, after you've hired the Teamsters and paid for their lunch, there's not a lot of money left. (laughs) And, you know, because they they would if you shot on a stage at Universal, they charged your show for shooting on their stage. And I said, well, screw that. We'll shoot off the lot. okay? but we also charge you if you go and shoot off the lot. I mean, they had it coming and going from every direction. And that's that's how they work. And Universal was not alone in doing that. I mean, basically all of them operated in the same basic way. And all of the episodic shows uh, when I joined Six Mill were six day shoots. And I remember Frank Price. A million a day. Uh, well, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, and I remember Frank Price having a conniption after uh, the Bionic Woman uh, was so successful and they wanted to turn it into a series. And I said, Frank, uh, we can do that and I can do that for you. Uh, but um, it's going to be a seven-day show. And he said, well, you don't understand, Ken. You know, it can't be a seven-day show. It's like a sonnet. A sonnet only has 14 lines. you know? <laughs> On, it's, it's not a science, you know. And I said, Frank, Lindsay Wagner is a brilliant actress, but she does not have the stamina to be in every scene of every episode, which is what you want, you know. Yeah. And the network would not let us let me write other characters that we could do scenes with. And that, no, 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 we want her on the screen. I said she can't do it. Well, I'm sorry, that's what we have to do. It Has to be a six day show. So every every episode we would board for six days of shooting, and it would always go into a seventh day. Yeah. And, uh, and, and and then very soon, a lot of the other episodic shows on the lot were beginning to shoot in seven days, the same kind of pattern. And then when I did the pilot for the Hulk and we got a series order on it, I said, now, Frank, you're not going to be happy about this, but... We can't do the Hulk in seven days," he said. "Well, Ken, you? Don't understand? It. It's a seven-day show." <laughs> I said, "Frank, Frank, when Homer wrote the Iliad, he did not write in the sonnet form. You know, <laughs> uh, we we don't have the, um, uh, the 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 ability to do that and make it happen with the special effects, the makeup, and all of this." And he said, "No, it has to be a seven-day show." Well, we board for seven days and every one of them went at least to eight days. Yeah. And then so, so I had the first seven day and then the first eight day show in the industry. And, uh, uh, and I don't think I've ever lived it down from the business affairs. Day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when Frank Price came to you and said, we want to spin off six million dollar man and do bionic woman. Um, you got to look at it. You know, we killed her. Right. I mean, well, like we, yeah, well we there's did. that, you know, well, well, in
2: my ori- <laughs> we didn't kill her. My original screenplay for for uh, the bionic woman, which was written in about a week on yellow legal pad longhand, like I always wrote then, Uh at the end, I left her in a, uh, a deep freeze, coma, Disney-esque kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh as in walt you know um yeah, yeah. some yeah, somewhere yeah. in burbank in a, you know well um <laughs> and they said no 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 they said no 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 she has to die we want her we want her to do love story we want her to be dead <laughs> right and i said i said this is a mistake and they said just just kill her off okay cerebral hemorrhage in the most advanced medical facility in the world and she's <laughs> gone bye guys and so now the uh, the, the uh, letters started coming in after the end of the, the second episode or the final episode of the of the on six mil, and the letters. My uh, the my favorite one came from the head of the the department of psychology at Boston University, said, "How dare you create this brilliant archetypical?" character this role model for young women this empower how dare you and just toss her away like that you know and the studio and the network at the same time were looking not so much at the letters but at the ratings because six mil sort of went up you know uh and uh and they said why did you kill her off anyway kenny that was a dumb idea (laughs) i swear to god it's like Bring her, bring her, bring her, back. Okay. And uh, so I created some, some, you know, but I, I try to, as George Burns counseled me once, when you're gonna tell a lie, put as much truth in it as you can, because that really makes it believe it, you know? Uh, so I went to with great pains to uh, try to craft some sort of reasonable method by which she could have remained alive um, and, uh, and which I did. But then I thought, gee, it would be a nice dramatic touch if she has lost her memory of Steve. Uh, so that, uh, you know, our hero is, is pained Lee b- because he loves her still. And she goes, oh, it's so nice to see you. And, you know, it's like, no, yeah. no, we're going to get married, man. Yeah. And, um, uh, and it was, it was a fun, dramatic uh, thing to play. But, uh, but I was very concerned about, um, uh, particularly when we went into the, the, the series aspect of it. Uh, how difficult it was gonna be to do, and particularly as a writer, producer, director, showrunner, yada, yada, uh, to try to keep myself alive long enough Mm -hmm. to keep them on the air. Uh, So after about, uh, after a few months, I, I finally went to Frank and said, look, Uh, I'm not going to have any time to direct if I keep doing this, Frank. And uh, and I love you, and I love all the extra money for two shows, but I really want to let go of one. And Lee was not happy, but he understood at the same time that I really had to go with my creation, which was Jamie, um and so i did that and i finally began to get my foot in the door where i could do some directing and create the shows that i wanted to do and that ended up with uh uh, the ghost hunter was the first one that i uh, wrote and directed for bionic woman and uh and then the two-parter doomsday show which is one of the those are two of the ones that people always remember the most of the bionic shows what's the ending of
0: Okay, Darren, let me just ask this one question. Okay. Be- be- before, you know, we uh, get too far p- past Six Million Dollar Man, you mentioned the shows that people always remember. I got to ask you about uh, six, uh, the Bigfoot. And Bigfoot's back in a special two-hour adventure of the Six Million
1: Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. Bigfoot, right after the Hardy Boys.
0: Sunday night starting at 7 on ABC. Because this is a show that you could argue with the Caden adaptation early on. It was somewhat realistic, right? Six Million Dollar Man was grounded in potentially realistic TikTok. Maybe, you know, he was espionage, spy, crap. Then it becomes Aliens. Bigfoot is an alien friend, which is wonderful. It's it, it it extended the life of the show. It made it super fun It attracted a young one. What what was the impetus, if you if you remember, you know, for taking it in that direction? Obviously, things like Bigfoot, and the Bermuda Triangle were huge things in the mid 70s that people don't remember. But
2: yeah, and, and I think I think actually they did a, do an episode about a Bermuda Triangle kind of thing. And I think that also that there had been a six meal episode at least in the early part of the second season that Lee Siegel produced, we were, we were, Lee was, Lee was a producer on the show. And so was I, I did half the shows. He did the other half of the shows Then we tried to split them up. although it never really quite worked that way. Uh, but, um, uh, and I think they did a, a, a one, at least one or two episodes where there was some sort of a sort of quasi alien, you know, element of it. But, uh, uh, but Bigfoot was 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 really an item in, in those days, in the, uh, in the late 70s. six, seventy seven, and 70, 76, 77. And, um, uh, and it's, it was a fun character to play with.
6: Can you understand me? Are you a man? No, it never hurts to ask. The woman. Can you understand the woman that... Easy now, easy. I don't want to hurt you. I'd like to thank the feeling's mutual. Okay, have it your way.
4: They were very evenly matched. I don't know. No, I'll still bet on the Sasquatch.
2: and uh, and the idea of having Lee rip his arm off and sparks fly out what really made it sort of like <laughs> a funny idea. That's where I used white eyes for the first time in a in a, in a character and uh, right. how creepy they were. And also of course, I had the great fun of working with Andre, uh, Andre the Giant. Uh, and this was be, be, before, long before uh, Princess Bride. It was before yes, he wanted to speak English, <laughs> right. you know, and uh, we were talking on the, I'm, I, I'm a, I know about as much French. Uh, I sound more French than I can speak, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but he was great. And, and being a, a wrestler, knew how to have the fights and not injure my leading man or right. our stuntman double for him. Uh, and, and he was just the sweetest, softest, most charming guy. Uh, and then when we did the return of Bigfoot, uh, Andre had, uh, was making too much money to come back uh, at that time. And, and then Ted Cassidy stepped in, who was not as big, but he was seven and change. Uh, Ted's is, is the voice, incidentally, that uh, of the the main title of the six mi- of uh, sure. Doctor, the Incredible Hulk, absolutely, you know, Doctor Dr. David Banner. That's mm-hmm. you know that's uh, uh, that's Ted because Ted had a voice that came from down here, you know, it was like yeah. <laughs> from the center of the earth. And uh, <laughs> um, but it was it was uh, uh, it was just I just sort of let my imagination go and where could I take it and how could I try to I've always tried to inject as much realism as I could. Uh, because you know we're dealing when you're doing doing shows like Bionic shows, you're really dealing in mythology. Uh, they're they're all I've always sort of felt a bit like the Greek and Roman mythological heroes, like Hercules and, and, and such, who were demigods, if you were, and um, uh, and, and it's important uh, <laughs> when we were doing the Hulk. Um, I, I, you may have heard me tell this story about Stan Lee uh, when I, I the original buy was for a pilot two-hour movie and a two-hour movie follow-up uh, of the Hulk to show how it could work as a as a series. Right. And uh, and in the second two-hour script, I wrote a, a scene where the, the Hulk, the creature, I always call him, we never called him the Hulk. I called him the creature. Right. He had a fight with a bear, you know, a bear. Uh, and Stan, I sent Stan the script, because I always did, just so he could keep in touch with what was happening. He never, you know, but he, he just flipped out. He said, this is great. I love that the fight with a bear is so cool, but it ought to be a robot bear. <laughs> 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 and, and, I, and I said, I said no. And let me take, let me explain why, Stan. I, I said because an adult audience will only give you so many buys; they will only buy so much. And now, Stan, we're asking them to buy that Bill Bixby can metamorphose into Lou Ferrigno. That's a really big buy. And we've got this really weird, strange, big green guy running around in the real world. And it's hard enough to make that work uh, but as soon as you add a robot bear, you are, you've, you've lost the adult audience, it gets into fantasy. And the interesting thing about my audience, guys, too, is, is that I, I have really lucked out in doing a lot of what they call four quadrant shows, you know, where there are they appeal to all four quadrants of the viewing audience. They appeal to kids, to teens, to adult women and adult men. Uh, but out of all in all the shows I've done, my largest single segment of the audience are the adult females. There, I had that, that's always been the largest share of my audience has been adult females. For the Bionic <laughs> shows, through Hulk, through V, through Alien Nation, and and Fembots. Uh, yeah, well, there's that too. I mean, I I love making creating strong female characters, and uh, uh, and and I. And I, I think that the reason for the success with the, the among female audiences is, is not because I set out to pander to a female audience. I wouldn't know how to do that. I just wrote what I liked and what I believed. And I was raised by a strong, uh, dominant um, uh, businesswoman who had a, who was a career woman. And, and I always saw her on a parallel with all the men that were around her. I, I had no idea she was getting paid probably half of what they were. But uh, I, I, I always looked for strong women. And I think that the female acting community is underserved because so many women actresses, actresses just end up being the wife or the girlfriend or whatever. And it was, uh, I felt that it was incumbent upon me to help create stronger role models for, for women. And, uh, and I was happy to do that in all the shows.
4: My, uh, my question from before was, uh, you've, uh, during the, uh, the Bionic shows, uh, you were dealing with two different networks. You were dealing with ABC for uh, Six Million Dollar Man and NBC for Bionic Woman.
2: Well, they were both on ABC to begin with.
4: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but then, uh, then it was canceled and you shifted it over. Somehow.
2: yeah yeah. for some reason the because the, we were still getting really good ratings i mean when i was doing both shows there were a few weeks where six million dollar man was the number one show in the country and bionic woman sure. was number three i mean it was crazy uh the amount of audience and uh, and the public reaction i remember Lindsay telling me how she went to try to go to disneyland and couldn't get in the gate because she was Goodness. you know yeah. it was just overwhelmed and um Uh, which didn't serve her well, unfortunately, for a while. She managed to come back out of it and now she and I have been great friends for for many, many years. Um, But um, uh, no, uh, uh, it started on ABC and then shifted over to NBC and it was right at a time where Lindsay was beginning to go into a darker period herself uh, and uh, she was having a, a, a lot of, Personal problems. She was married to a guy that was not the best guy for her, uh, as it turned out. Um, and um, uh, and and her stamina was was also really being challenged. Um, and it, and I, and also there was there was a lot of drugs going on in those days. I was not into that scene. But uh, it was it was prevalent uh, in the community, um, and uh, I remember uh, the day that I began to say, "Okay, I really got to turn a corner here." I, I walked down onto the to our set where our company was filming on the lot, and uh, you know they have a craft service table where they have food and munchies and stuff like that, and sometimes people bring in homemade cookies and something. And there was a there was a tray of uh, brownies there that was almost Uh-oh. gone. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> and I said, "Really? Oh, okay. They look good." And then, and somebody came one. Some one of the crew members came. Over and said, "Oh, Kenny man, you got to have one of the brownies, man!" Whoa! whoa it's this some really? Yeah. And we're doing some great shots out of here. Whoa! Too. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, uh, there were a lot of guys on the crew that were really stoned. And I said, "I think I want to get off this train." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> um, and and it was it was affecting. Performances and uh, uh, and ultimately, I, I I went to Frank and said, "Look, I really think that uh, uh, it's better if I step away and uh,
4: not uh, not to mention any departments uh, specifically, but grips." Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no let me tell you I mean Lindsay joked about it one time but it's really funny she she remembered one time when our our key special effects guy a guy named Joe Goss who's a good 20 years older than me and an old pro and he was up on a rooftop overhead and he had to do some sparks or something like what it was and Lindsay said she remembered she and she and she knew that he had been imbibing uh and are smoking something at least uh, and she was uh, she was underneath that rooftop, and they were in the middle of the shooting. And she hears she said, "You you don't want to be under a rooftop where your special effects guy is overhead with things that go fire fiery and spark, and hear his voice saying, oh, shit! Oh my god! And yeah, so that uh, it was that was that was part of it. It was uh, it was time to step back.
0: And, uh, well, this this was the I era was- when. Most writers had mini bars in their offices too. Well, that's true. Pretty common. Yeah, but Um, I I was I was wondering, and I was wondering, and in your later uh,
4: dealings with CBS on Incredible Hulk, was there any difference between the leadership at either uh, uh, any of the networks?
2: Um, Well, yes. Uh, First of all, Fred Silverman ran all of them at one time or another and gave me some great breaks and gave me some great opportunities and and fun to do. and And we had a good relationship. I had actually met him. I did it because it was a couple of years when I first came out here and had to make a living where I did some game shows for ABC uh, that were doing that needed some film work done on them. and uh, and I got I got to know um, uh, Jack Barry very well, the the game show Maven, uh, and Fred Silverman, who was then running ABC Daytime. And so I'd known Fred for you know, for a long time. Um, and, uh, and 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 Freddie was the kind of guy that uh, uh, would would throw out an idea and see if you could you know you could run with it. Brandon was like that too. Many, Super train. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there were <laughs> like that too. Uh, and um, uh, this is a favorite Brandon story I can tell too. But the, um, uh, the 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 when after we finished the pilot for the Incredible Hulk uh, and the two hour movie. Frank and I went and sat down with the fellow who was running CBS at the time. He was the then president of CBS. And he was, uh, I had not met him before. Uh, And he'd been in the business for a while, but first time running a network. And he didn't get it. When we said this is a series, and he said, "What do you mean? How could this possibly be a series?" I said, "Well, here's how it works. You saw how it happened, the genesis. You've seen how it's now moving forward, and how it go, how he goes from town to town. How there are, there are two kinds of shows: one where he's trying to get someplace to get to his cure, and another, and the other kind of show where he is." he's found a cure but it goes south on him uh and the people that he encounters along the way like jean valjean and uh trying to stay one step ahead of inspector jover you know pursuing him which is where the whole idea of the hulk came from because uh when when frank first asked me if i take on one of the marvel comic superheroes uh you know i said no you know uh no thanks uh but uh but i was reading les miserables at the time and that's how the fugitive got melded into uh into what became became the hulk
1: dr david banner physician scientist searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry and now when david banner Metamorphosis occurs. The creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr.
3: McGee, don't make me angry.
6: You wouldn't like me when I'm angry.
1: commit david banner is believed to be dead and he must let the world think that he is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him
2: um and uh, and this guy what was his name arch he was army army archard was the uh variety uh, the variety. variety reporter it was his brother I've forgotten his first name he only la- he only lasted about 20 minutes at CBS as the president uh and like uh, like Harvey Shepard later on who only lasted about 20 minutes but just long enough to cancel the Hulk you know it was yeah. like- Harvey, what are you doing? That's <laughs> no, insane, Harvey. Listen, we've got six shows in the can already for the next for the fifth season. Uh, just uh, buy another half a dozen or so. Do it for you because he said, "No, I don't think so. I don't think that he uh, that it's going to work any longer." And uh, even though we were still in the top twenty, it was like,
5: well, no. It's amazing how um, durable that interpretation of the Hulk really turned out to be. Um, you know, and, and not just in terms of how, uh, how, you know, our generation remembers that show, which was amazing. But you know, whether you're talking about the Ang Lee Hulk, you know, or the attempted, uh, you know, uh, Incredible Hulk movie with Ed Norton. Like there are elements of that show that persist. I mean, sure, it's Thunderbolt Ross, you know, or you know, it's it's you know whoever who's after the Hulk, but that fugitive aspect really became a, a part of the character, embedded in his yeah,
2: body. yeah. But you know, uh, Ashley, what they missed. Uh, Susie and I were at the premiere of the first one, the Ang Lee version, and I'm a huge fan of Ang. I mean, Crouching Tiger, Please, you know, Absolutely. and so many of his other works, but but. uh about five minutes into the, the, the Hulk movie that he that Ang Lee had directed, uh, Susie leaned over and said, is it just me or is this the worst movie I've ever seen in my life? And the whole audience was really feeling it. It was like, this was just the wrong casting of directors. This was not name, yeah. something. And also they had... They had completely lost the the essence of what made people want to see the the, the show the the heart and the humanity that Bix uh, and our writers uh, and our directors brought to the original series uh, that was just not there uh, and there's another aspect too which you know if you were looking at a mo- if you're, at a you're looking at a, a Shrek movie a 3D animated Shrek movie right yeah. And suddenly there was a real human being in the middle of it, you know. You you disconnect. Your brain goes, no, no, wait, that's that's wrong. You yeah. Know, and that was the problem with with uh, with trying to put the animated CGI creature into the real world. It just didn't work, and uh, uh, and it was. It it was a an embarrassing premiere because everybody just wanted to sneak out the door at the end, and I had had nothing to do with the movie at all.
3: Yeah,
2: uh, they just invited me because of the, the old time's sake, you know. Uh, and as I was leaving, <laughs> one of the writers, I think, it was from Variety. Actually, snagged my arm, and because the only line that had gotten a rise out of the audience was, was the line that I, you know, well, you know, like
0: me when I'm angry. Yeah, yeah. yeah right.
2: The, 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 and instantly, I don't know if you know it, but that. That shot that was in the main title every week was Take Two.
4: Um, Interesting.
2: Yeah, wow. Take One, Bix came out and he was playing it angry. Wow. <laughs> I said, Me, Wait, cut, 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 stop, Bix. And I went up to him and I said, Bill. Oh, it's a joke. Yeah. He said, Oh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: and he went back and I think found I that.
5: Stanislavski.
2: Yeah, that's it. And, he, he, and Bix went back and found that brilliant little twinkle, you know, that 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 made it that made it last. But that was the only line in that first movie that that got a rise out of the audience. And as we were leaving the state, it's leaving the theater that night, the guy from Variety grabbed me and said, Mr. Johnson, don't make me hang Lee. You wouldn't like yeah. me when I'm <laughs> Ang Lee. Uh, well,
3: you know what's interesting
5: about those films is, I mean, again, regardless of what the interpretation is, I mean I, I think um, for my money, like the, the two most successful film interpretations, or maybe like the two best ideas for a Hulk film, both came in season four of The Incredible Hulk, the Prometheus two-parter and the first (laughs) two-parter, because those were really sort of fascinating deconstructions of what it was to be the Hulk. And I think that's why they stuck with me when I was a kid.
2: Oh, that's interesting, Ashley. And, and those are the two that most people mention. Uh, when I get the, the, the ma- millions of the thousands, literally tens of thousands of fan mails, those two pop up all the time. Uh, and particularly the one in Prometheus where Bix gets stuck in between. He's neither here right. nor there. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a great fun to, 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 you know, to do those. But, but I think that the, the, the other thing is, the, the the difference between the the TV show I mean and certainly it was it was so frustrating for 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 me personally because we didn't have the kind of effects that we needed to make it really work in I, I could never get the goddamn wig to look any good you know right. no matter what we did it ended up looking like a fright wig I, I thought in later life was why was that I guess we had to cover up this Lou Ferrigno had his huge Italian hair you know <laughs> uh, why do not we just <laughs> shave his head and he could, <laughs> you know uh, uh, but but it was it was always frustrating but but at the same time um what made the what made the show i think hang on so long ashley is the is the emotional uh construction of it mm-hmm. uh and the reason i went to bill the only actor i went uh, i went to with it because i i i had seen bill do a, a play on pbs called steam bath which uh, if you've never seen get it and look at it it was done in he did it in 1973 it's about a group of people that find themselves in a steam bath bill and uh, valerie valerie perrine uh very naked in some of it actually and, uh, and a few other actors and but they don't know why they're there and nobody can quite remember how they got there and it turns out it's purgatory right. uh, and i watched in this 90 minutes bill bixby do every single moment of Every emotion and every range that you can imagine, an actor could encompass. And uh, and when uh, I was writing the script, I thought this is this is the guy I want to go to. And uh, when Paul uh, gave his agent gave Bill the script, Bill said, "I'm not going to read anything that's called the Hulk." And his, <laughs> agent, his wow. agent said, "Yes, you are." <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Uh, and he did and he called me the next day we'd known we'd met each other just casually a few times but um uh, never worked together can i come talk to you tomorrow i said yeah sure sure come on up and and bix came up and and maybe you've heard me tell that story about how he just when bill came into the room it was always like the first eight bars of tiger rag you know Because he was a force of nature, and a powerhouse, and you get he'd get right in your face we're gonna do this, so long we're really gonna do it like this. You know, really like face to face. And I'd say, Yes, yes, this is what we're gonna do. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Greek tragedy, Bix. He said, That's what I thought it was. You know, the hero brings down the curse on himself. I said, Right, exactly. That's what it is. And the gods don't like it when you tamper with things that are left to the gods and they get you back and uh and and he just wanted to be assured that that we were not going to do a cartoon show that we were not going to do a comic book show he understood why i had changed his name from uh, bruce banner to david banner to get away from the comic book alliteration of peter right. parker lex luthor lowes lane Lo- you know and and all of that stuff and um uh and make him try uh, to try to be as real as it possibly could be and uh and i think that's the and and the, and it had rules, I mean, very tight rules. The same with the bionic shows. The writer would come That's in great. and pitch a story to me about, okay, well, here, Lindsay, uh, she, Jamie goes in, she turns over a truck, and I said, she can't turn over a truck. Well, what do you mean she's bionic? I said, yeah, she is. She can turn over a car, not a truck. She can jump up one floor, but not through. She can jump up come down two floors, but not three other, you know, she breaks, you know, there are rules. And when you're doing something like that, you've got to really be conscious of what the rules are and really try to stay within them. And, uh, uh, and that's why I think the audiences came along with us because we tried to keep that, that solidity all the time. And also in crafting those episodes, we would try to say, okay, what makes this a Hulk episode? You know, because to me, the 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 under underlying underlying overriding theme of the Incredible Hulk was self-control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, not just for Bix, uh, but with him, his demon, his and controlling that inner demon. You know, his inner demon was anger. You know, and but for other people, it could be obsession, it could be greed, it, it could be uh, drugs, it could be alcohol. Obviously, those things. Uh, but a, a lot of a lot of finer tuned things, you know, uh, jealousy, and so we would try to say, okay, so somebody, a writer, would come in and start pitching a story, and we go, never mind the story and the plot. What's it about? <laughs> you know, what's it about underneath? And and that's the same thing that led me into doing what I what I did uh, on the Bionic shows, uh, but but even more so on the Hulk, and then even more so in Alien Nation. We really uh, crafted the shows that way. And when I came up with the idea of V, um, as you I'm sure know, it was not a science fiction thing at all to begin with. Uh, It was a grassroots fascist takeover uprising that left us in a different country. Uh, Because I was interested in exploring how different people reacted to power.
6: The visitors arrived in 50 gigantic motherships, which stunned the world with their monumental size and power. We have come in peace, because we need your help. And in return, we will gladly share with you all the fruits of our knowledge. Talk about an offer we can't refuse, huh? In the weeks that followed, the visitors became a new and friendly part of our lives. The visitors were quickly assimilated into our culture. I'm not very good at this. Many close relationships developed between our people and theirs. But there were some who were skeptical, too inquisitive. They began to quickly disappear. And then Jankowski had unshakable proof that a conspiracy of scientists around the world was about to seize control of visitor ships for their own gain. Becoming more deeply suspicious of the visitors, used cameraman Mike Donovan infiltrated one of the huge motherships and discovered that the visitors had orchestrated the conspiracy themselves so that scientists would be ostracized around the world. And Donovan also videotaped another startling revelation. But as Donovan's tape was about to be broadcast... Just hey, off... somebody's
3: pulled AT&T right out from under us. The whole damn network's off the air.
1: Look, we know what's happening. Totalitarian suppression of the truth.
6: Not only on television, but they've got the papers, too. We are under martial law.
3: And paranoia.
6: Scientist Robert Maxwell and his family, unable to escape the visitors' tightening net, have been given refuge by Abraham Bernstein, a survivor of Hitler's death camps. They have to stay, or else we haven't learned a thing. And the resistance movement has begun. Theft of equipment for a biochemical lab spearheaded by med student Juliet Parrish and Dr. Ben Taylor who was mortally wounded. Oh my God! For victory, you understand? Go tell your friends. And now, the conclusion of V.
2: V was always about power about how like the nazis rolling into across europe and the vichy french collaborating some of them would collaborate other people would keep their head down and other people would be the heroes of the resistance that said no 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 we've got to fight back this is wrong you know and um uh, and and it was the fact that that that's the story that I wanted to tell and uh, uh, and talk about it, network hit guys. Um, Brandon, um, when I were having dinner one night when I was writing that that script, it was originally called Storm Warnings. Uh, uh, about how this could happen, uh, because I had read Sinclair Lewis's novel, uh, It Can't Happen it Here, can't, which, yeah. he wrote, <laughs> yeah, which he wrote, yeah, which he had written in 1935. I was a big fan of his his other work, and uh, but I stumbled across that one, never having heard about it. He wrote it in 1935 about the rise of fascism that was happening in Germany and Italy, happening in the United States with the idea of, well, it can't happen here, this is the United States. Uh, <laughs> well, look at the last few years we've been through and are still in. In some regards, and uh, uh, and that idea intrigued me, uh, and to to try to imagine how uh, civilization and, and people in our society would react. Different people, uh, if suddenly it was a different place, because they haven't we hadn't had at that point. Now this was well before nine eleven. Bear in mind, and there had not been a day in American history where there was a a huge sea change overnight since Pearl Harbor in forty one. Right. Okay. Where all of a sudden, overnight, we were in a different situation in a different country in many ways. Uh and I wanted to see how people would, you know, would react to that. And um, and I told Brandon I was writing this script and he wanted to read it. And I said, No, Brandon, this I really I see it as a movie. I don't think, you know. So well, just let me read it. And he and he read the, the first draft that I would write written. And he said, I, I I love this. This we gotta do this, we gotta do this. God, I want you to come, come and talk to the guys with me about it. So I went to the office, uh, to his office in Burbank and and he and I had worked together when he was, I guess, one of the guys with Fred, under Freddie Silverman at ABC, because uh, we'd known each other previously and done some stuff together. Uh, and uh, and and he said, "Look, we love this idea of America under occupation, but, but um, I, I, I have trouble with fascism. I don't know that Americans would really get it." And uh, and he suggested that maybe it'd be a foreign adversary like the Russians or Soviets in those days or the Chinese, and I say, no, I, I don't think that would, I can't believe that, I can't make myself believe that, that that would be a sea change in life. And uh, and uh, Brandon had a young uh, executive vice president named Jeff Sagansky, who was uh, sitting uh, in, in the corner and uh, listening to the whole thing. And Jeff said, how about aliens, Kenny? <laughs> Robot bears, Jeff. <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know? You know? Uh, I said, I, I i literally, I jumped out of my uh, the, the chair I was sitting on. I said, No, 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 stop, stop pushing me into that corner of science fiction and fantasy and and speculative. You know, and Jen Brandon was, oh, it's okay. Oh, well, just just think about it. Just just look. Just just take the think about it. That's all. Just you know. Hmm. So I went home that night, and I'm sitting there stewing, and 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 then at one point I just realized that's a really brilliant idea because I can tell exactly the same story that I want to tell, which is about power, yeah, uh, and 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 not sacrifice any of the of the messages and and the, the thought provocation that I was looking to instill in an audience, you know, right. uh, but also have the eye candy and the razzle dazzle and the spacecraft uh-huh. mm-hmm. fan made this for me uh-huh. well, <laughs> uh, uh, i can have all of that eye candy that will pull in um a, a larger younger audience mm-hmm. uh and then i can <laughs> tell them the story that i want to tell them once i got them you know
3: yeah
2: and um uh, and i said to brandon uh, to, uh, i called brandon and said okay i get it i'll be back in a little while with a story idea and 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 how i can make this work and uh, a couple of weeks later, I called Brandon and said, "Okay, I got the story laid out. I see how it works. Uh, Carve out a couple hours. I want to come over." He said, "No, no, just send it over. We'll read it." I said, "No, you won't. You guys don't."
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and also, this is the other the other factor of being in the room as you're doing it, and if you see somebody begin to nod off. Or if you see them beginning to, you know, you can you can um, channel it. Or if they have a question, you can that that seems like it might be problematic. You can squash it right in a bud yeah. and move on. And so, uh, so I went over and I sat down with uh, Brandon and Jeff and a couple of other guys, uh, in, in the office in Burbank, and and I literally told them the story of V that I envisioned, and there were no character names. I was wise enough not to use any character names because they'd never remember the names. Right. I would. Uh, Donovan was called the cameraman, and Faye was called the med student, right. and, uh, and 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 uh, and Willie was called the the guy trained in Arabic. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so that they could keep straight who was what. And I sat there for an hour and a half and told them the whole story. And when I finished, Brandon said, "Wow." Um, how long do you think it is? It feels like maybe six hours, like a miniseries. And I said, um, I think I can do it in four, but I'm not, I, I think. And Brandon said, well, however long it is, that's how long it's going to be. Oh and uh, and I said, okay, well, what notes have you guys got? And they said, none, no notes, go do it. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and that's sort of the, the Hulk came about just almost in exactly the same way. Uh, uh, when I wrote the pilot for the Hulk, uh it was written in seven days the whole script <laughs> story the script in seven days in longhand uh, on Easter Sunday of 1977 I still remember at 10 in the morning after we after we, Susie and I had, had breakfast I sat down and started to write and by the end of the day I had written 43 pages of script Holy and cow, uh it's still my record I think and uh but the telling thing is that we shot the white pages uh you know normally when you wow. have revisions in a script yeah. there's there's like a lot of different color pages for every time there's a new revision in the hulk there was no revisions and in, in v uh the only revisions were ones that i made as i went along i got no notes from brandon uh, and the guys and jeff on the script uh and well, you, you put the names in yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well they were, they were that's right I put the names in to figure it out well even then though no even then there was there was there was some pressure because some of the people underneath uh, Brandon said you know this there's, there's too many characters the audience will get lost mm-hmm. and Brandon said no they won't once there's an actor's face there you know who you are with and and he yeah. is the father of her and she is the girlfriend of him and it'll and Brandon said Kenny knows what he's doing this will work and uh, and he just told everybody to back off and let me do it, you know. Wow. Uh, and um, uh, then the other problem that arose, there was a second problem, which was uh, that brand, the NBC was in the toilet and they had their, their, their ratings wise. I mean, they yeah, were really crashed yeah. and burned. Uh, and Brandon was desperate to have something that was big and splashy that could, you know, re- help reinvigorate the network. And he wanted it really fast, mm. uh, like really fast uh, like for February sweeps. And this was in September wow. you know, looking at, and, uh, uh, and it's
0: very visual effects heavy
2: and it's, oh, that, yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and visual effects before there were good, easy to do visual effects. Yeah. It was, there yeah. was no CGI in those yeah. days, you know, it was all motion control and miniatures and, uh, uh, well, yeah, and I had all, the, all those A teams from all of those places working on it. The, Greg Jean, who built the uh, uh, the mothership for Close Encounters and the yep. Star Trek Enterprise, and in, in the uh, Enterprise, uh, was the guy that built all the miniatures for uh, for V. Uh, him and his team, um, but but it was Brennan was in a hurry, and um, normally to do a four-hour miniseries with a cast of almost seventy people. Um, you'd have, what, four or five months just to prep, you know, the whole thing, just to build the stuff you needed and all of that, And, and four or five months. And from the weekend when Brandon read my full first draft script and said go until the day I said action was two and a half weeks. Oh, my
0: God. Wow, that's crazy!
2: Yeah, they, I mean, I people, well, yeah. Most people like you. Most people in the industry go. No, you didn't. That's bullshit. You I, know. I, I, you
0: casting, know. prep, locations. I mean, it's and, yeah. and it. it's it it scripted one thing, but that's crazy. That's extraordinary. I yeah, mean, it
2: was it was insane. And uh, and how did it how did it happen? Well, it happened because Brandon really needed it for February, or thought he did. And uh, uh, and he knew that I could deliver and deliver fast as I had in the past. But I said, geez, guys, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I said, okay, look, I'll do the best. We, we'll do the best we can. And uh, and we started shooting literally two and a half weeks after he said go. Um, and I now I obviously... We had stuff that we were beginning to line up. I had always already corralled almost all of my uh, crew from The Incredible Hulk at Universal to bring them over to be with me at uh, uh, at Warner's. I brought along Chuck Davis, who had been my production designer on Prometheus and on, on the whole Incredible Hulk series and Bionic Woman uh, before that. Uh, Chuck, who always would tell me, is this the best we can do? You know, and... Uh, um, a brilliant guy. And uh I, I so that's a whole nother story. But uh, so I had I had a team that had been working together for you know for over five years uh that really spoke the same language and a brilliant cinematographer in John McPherson uh and my composer Joe Harnell who, uh and I knew exactly where I wanted to go with the music and all. Um uh, so I was had begun to line things up, but it wasn't until Brandon said go that I could say, okay, move everybody in here. Let's start the casting, let's start the location scouting and uh, and, uh, and this was in a day where there were no cell phones to, they could show you pictures. The, you know, they'd have to go take the pictures and bring them back or they would yeah. drag yeah. you out to the location. So we're doing all of that and then casting in the afternoons. Uh, and, and in many cases, I, I hired the first actor that they brought me because they happened to hit the ball exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> anymore. They tell everybody else they can go home. And, and um, um, it wasn't until uh, riding we, you know, we were struggling with Donovan, trying to find a Donovan. And um, near the, it was the just a week before we started filming. uh, Somebody mentioned Mark Singer, and I and I said, "Wait a minute, Mark Singer!" And I had remembered seeing Mark play Petruchio in *The Taming of the Shrew* uh, in San Francisco ten years earlier, and I remember going, "Whoa, who is he?" And, And being really impressed at the time. And Mark came in on Friday. Uh, and I knew in the 15 or 20 seconds that he was the guy. Uh, and we rehearsed over the weekend with as many of the cast as could get together at the old AFI place. And then uh, and we started shooting on Monday. So Mark was one of the last ones cast and I still hadn't cast Diana. I had not wow. been able to find the, the, the right person for Diana. Faye uh, was already on board because I had done a movie for CBS called Senior Trip in 1981. Uh, which was a autobiographical musical comedy kind of coming of age piece based on my own senior high school trip to New York City uh, when when I was a senior in high school. Uh, and and there were a bunch of different kids. And I mean, you know, a couple of kids just wanted to see all the sights in the city. A couple of the guys just wanted to get laid. That was the only way, that was their own. Somebody else wanted to be in the theater. Somebody else wanted to be a singer, you know? And uh, so, it and, and Faye was the girl with the checkered past uh, who had to get past her past uh, and she was really 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 good and when I started writing V and creating this uh, younger character to run, read, to do, lead the resistance I would call NBC and I said this is who I want for 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 V or uh, Jude the character of Julie uh, I want Faye and they said oh we love her that's great you know and I mean they, they gave me whoever I wanted anyway but uh, but I asked uh, I had already asked Brandon, What's your thinking about casting here? Do you want to cast it up? Are you looking at stars? I mean, there has never been a miniseries before or since that didn't any television stars, much less movie stars. Yeah. V stands alone in that regard.
0: Yeah, it was all Richard Chamberlain, Peter O'Toole and Masada, you know, rich Richman, Poor Man, Ignulty. I mean oh, it yeah. was like, oh yeah,
2: yeah. it's in, in, in Robert Mitchum, you know, War. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, all of that stuff. And Brandon said, You don't need it, Kenny. I said, What are you talking about? You always need somebody to help you open the movie. And he said, you're, this is going to open <laughs> this is it's your story that you're going to do that's going to be compelling that that will really make it work and we really really believe that and uh and i think he had there was a little subterfuge going on too because he was already thinking of going on into a series with it mm-hmm. which uh you know i wasn't against and certainly i left it open ended with that possibility um, but, um, uh, you know, I just wanted to get on the set and direct. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. But that's, uh, you mentioned the, the open ending. That's one of the great tragedies of V that they were so anxious to have a sequel, you know, miniseries that they weren't willing to accommodate your very reasonable request. And as a result, they turned it into a soap mm-hmm. opera and what they did later with the TV series that you weren't able to tell the story you wanted to tell, yep. because of course, the first miniseries is you know a, a science fiction classic uh, it's a television classic beyond just the genre um and and what you said too at the time tv was star vehicles it was two handers you had an ensemble drama when that was so rare and it's so perfectly cast i mean it's just it's a re there's a reason this became a huge pop culture phenomenon people who weren't alive at the time don't realize this. I mean, V was everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. it. wasn't just a water cooler show, it was like a phenomenon. It was like Star Wars.
6: Tonight is your chance to see how it all began, to relive the excitement that is V, the most extraordinary miniseries ever. A daring TV journalist struggling to uncover the startling truth behind the aliens' visit to Earth. And a beautiful and brave young scientist fighting for the very survival of the human race. Together, they take you on a fantastic journey to meet the visitors. Prepare yourself for a television event that's out of this world. Prepare for the next.
2: It, 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 it really was. It was it was amazing. Well, the two it happened for a couple, for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons one of the reasons it happened was because um, when. Um, I'd been working at CBS, um, the, the head of advertising publicity at CBS was a guy named Steve Somer, And uh, Steve and I had huge fights and battles because I had sold my soul essentially to Bix to get him to play the role And the the big ad that uh, that uh, Steve took out for the Hulk was a full page of Lou Ferrigno, Mm -hmm. Green Monster on the loose headline down in little tiny letters at the bottom, starring Bill Bixby. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, first of all, I had to peel Bix off the ceiling, and. And, you know, and then I went to Steve and I said, you're missing the point that we know the kids are gonna come for that. You've got to pitch the fact that Bill Bixby, a big television star from Eddie's father and my favorite Martian is, you know, is there, somebody that people love, you know? And and I, Steve finally got the idea and went you know, into it. So, fade out, fade in, now we're doing V at NBC. And Brandon said, listen, I, I, I'm so excited. I just hired a great guy to do ad pub at NBC. And I said, "Oh, okay. I'm eager to talk to him. Who is it? Steve Somer. Oh no!"
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, you know. And so I, I, saw, I took the bull by the horns. I went, to "Call Steve," and I said, "I got to come talk to you." So I went to Steve's office, and I said, "Look, you don't like me because you think I meddle in what you think you know better than me." I said, "I have trouble with you, Steve, because sometimes I think you miss the essence of what I'm trying to to say and to do and to sell." Um, so let's see if we can work together and see, what do you think of this idea? I said, have you ever, you remember the Nazi propaganda posters from World War II with the German soldiers, with the Nazis and the little girls sitting on their shoulders. Hi, we're the Nazis, the new guys in town. You know, we're, we're, we're here to help you. We're going to protect you from the English. They're going to start mining, you know, in the, the English Channel. We're going to take care of that for you. And, and then slowly they reveal another, a darker face, you know. And I said, I would suggest, Steve, that you put up propaganda posters on billboards, in subways, on bus stops, that don't say anything about V or NBC or anything. That just are, hi, we're the alien newcomer, for you know, the alien, and here we are to be your friends. See, friendship is universal. Put up a bunch of different posters like that all over. And don't, I said, and then, a, uh, and do that like three weeks before the show. I said, two weeks before the show, send out a crew of kids in every town with cans of red spray paint and deface your own poster. Put a big, <laughs> <different> <laughs> That's effort, awesome. you know. And then just the last week, just put a little banner in the corner that says, The battle begins on NBC on May 1st. And Steve came out of his chair <laughs> <to> <laughs> and said, That's brilliant. We're going to do that. And bless his heart, he did. They spent a couple of million dollars in those days, big money. Uh, to to do that all over. And I had friends in New York calling me saying, what is this? What, do you know anything about this thing that I saw on the subway? That's creepy. And uh, so partly that's what was the reason that the audience tuned in. Partly they tuned in because uh, as, I, as I began to get the, the, as the film was put together, they were able to be able to pull some sequences that were really eye-popping and waking you up. Uh, and then just a, f- a week or so before we aired, the reviews started coming in from the New York Times and the Daily News and the Philadelphia Inquirer and the San Francisco Chronicle mm-hmm. and the Washington Post and, you know, and CBS and, uh, and, 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 and a lot of other places with just like, reviews that you know my mother would have written for them you know all Uh, all because you invented viable marketing well (laughs) it's so funny that you said that darren because that's that's, i've been i've mentioned that to people later in in this day and age they've said exactly that thing and i hadn't i hadn't realized because it's true okay i'll take it you know (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but so that's that's the second reason that the show was successful because we had the, the advertising campaign, we had the, the, the critical acclaim, uh, we had visions that we could, visuals that we could show that were really grabbed an audience. Uh, and then most importantly, it delivered. Um, and uh, the, the best day that I have ever had in my career, I think, was I had four editors working on this with me simultaneously uh, in four different editing rooms, you know, and they were each doing different pieces of, of the montage of the whole thing. Uh, and, and nobody, even me, had seen the whole thing. And I said, guys, we've got to just tape this together and see what it looks like. Uh, and there were no visual effects, no sound effects, no music, uh, no dialogue cleanup, uh, a lot of slugs and scratches on the, all the film. Um, and we put it together. It was three and a half hours long. And we sat in this little screening room, number two in at Warner Brothers, up by the front offices. And we sat there in the dark and watched it for three and a half hours. And when the lights went up, we all just looked at each other and went, whoa, because it took your head off without any visual effects special effects any of that stuff at all it was so the drama was so tight and the, the relationships were so clear and the struggles and the turmoil was so strong that it, it was really just a, a blow away you know and uh and i thought wow uh, this is this is going to be something because the core of the piece is there and i and I knew that all the, uh, the, everything else was gonna be icing on the cake, but we had baked a cake like nobody ever had. Um, and, and I called Brandon uh, from outside the screening room and I said, I think you're gonna be really happy. I, I told him what I had just seen and it's, it's really, really, really strong. He said, that's great, I'm so excited, so excited. I said, yeah, there's one problem. He said, what? And he said, well, you know, we decided on four hours. And he said, yeah, yeah, right. Well, it's four hours and 15 minutes with commercials. And he said, "Well, we'll you know we'll trim it down." And I said, "Brandon, uh, you're going to have to help me out here. Uh, I'd like you to come over and look at it. And it's completely raw, but I'd like you to look at it because I don't. N- none of us here can figure out what we could cut that wouldn't hurt the movie." He said, "I'll be there tomorrow." So he came over the next day. We sat in the same screening room. Lights come down. He sits there for three and a half hours. The lights come up, and Brandon's sitting there. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I'm going. Egad! Uh, and uh, uh, and then he uh, uh, he said, "Can we go outside?" Well, <laughs> okay, sure. Let's go outside. And uh, and he's outside and he's still, You know, and uh, and I, I said, "What are What are you thinking?" And he said, "I'm thinking that I have to go to the affiliates and see if they will give me 15 more minutes." Mm-hmm. I said, "Can you do that?" And he said. Beats the shit out of me.
0: <laughs>
2: he said, uh, nobody I know has ever done that. But he said, we can't cut this, Kenny. This is, you're right. Uh, it, it all needs to be there. And so he did. And uh, and he had a special a meeting of the affiliates. So, you know, and... Uh, uh, and they all agreed. And so the first night of V went from uh, 9 until 11, 15. And all over America, people were going, wait a minute, where, where's the news? It's, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, the other thing that was great is that the audience, you know, in ratings on a two-hour project, uh, it's nine o'clock, you get good ratings, The audience tunes in, how much? How do they stay? They stay, they stay through, by the quarter hour, you know, they measure. And our ratings just kept going up and up and up all the way through the whole uh, ninety. Whatever was two and a half, two and a half hours, two hours and fifteen minutes for the first night, and and then the second night was even bigger, uh, and it was uh, uh, it was the highest rated show NBC had had in two and a half years uh, with a forty share we had.
3: Holy uh, cow!
2: To my knowledge, I believe that it is the highest rated work of science fiction in the history of television. Since uh,
0: your War of the Worlds audio cast in yeah. uh, middle school, <laughs> yes. Um, yes, yes, this, you bookending the career there. That's um, right,
2: and, and the only the the only the great the only great sadness of it was uh, was you know, we I told you what a crunch we were under trying to get to try to get it made uh, and starting to shoot after two and a half weeks. And then after only about, and we didn't have a budget from Warner Brothers until we were about three weeks into the filming. And then four weeks into the filming, one of my leading ladies was murdered. And that was the loss of Dominique like, Dunn, yeah. yeah. And uh, um, and it was I was just talking yesterday to somebody a, a writer from Vanity Fair has called me about this as well. <laughs> and because um, uh, he had he, he had known Dominic uh, because he had written a lot for for Vanity Fair uh, and had talked to him about it. and uh, he remembered how Dominic remembered me being there at Cedars uh, the day that uh, sh- the morning after she had been brought in, and a week later when they took her off life support uh it was uh breathtaking and horrifying and how do you go on and uh um, but you know warner's was not about to say well let's take the day off and let everybody have no no we'll just keep shooting mm-hmm. yeah. and uh but we the the, the whole company was you know was just destroyed for a while and we had to hold ourselves together to try to to try to keep up and stay professional and still make all the drama that we needed to make oh, yeah. um and i still and i miss her to this day i have a photo on the wall here at the office uh but they're behind me um it was taken during the rehearsal and it's a it's a wonderful moment where all the family is is hugging each other but the only face that you can see is dominique's and um uh it was it was just a
0: terrible loss yeah, no, it's, it's, it, that's such a, a tragic story. Yeah. And um, it, it, I have to say, I think you made a four quadrant show before four quadrant was a word you had the audience <laughs> that was coming for the action, the audience that was coming for the allegory and the metaphor that, it, you, that you were telling and then the audience that was coming to watch uh, Diana eat rats. So, I mean, it was amazing that you were just bringing in everyone who was looking at it for a you know a different a different reason. and that's why I think it got the critical acclaim it did and why everybody was talking about it because you were telling a very meaningful story. I mean, it's like NBC can make Holocaust, but in an, in a way, you doing V is more impactful because the story it sneaks is- under the radar.
2: Yeah, yeah. That I think you're right. That that's it, and that's that's the way it should be. I mean, you you know, obviously we Hitchcock said you can be anything, but not boring, uh, and uh, and and I've always sort of adhered to that too. But the other thing too is that I should mention maybe is that um, uh, I don't think I ever could have written V had I not read War and Peace a year earlier. Because I was just intrigued by how Tolstoy had all of these disparate people with their each with their individual stories and how he just brought it around to yeah. that, you know. And I thought, wow, that's a piece of writing. And uh, uh, and it uh, it really it really helped to inspire me to to try to uh, uh, achieve that that same kind of effect uh, and and to touch people. Also, I wanted everybody in the audience, to have an idea of who they might be, which character was them, right? You know, oh, I think I'd be like him. Oh, I hope I'd be like her. Oh, gee, I might yeah. be like that person, but I don't wouldn't want to be, you know. And uh, yeah. uh, and that's I think part of it. But the bottom line, though, still comes back to that day in this in the room in screening room two when it was just the actors working and the, and the story working and their their performances, uh, all of them absolutely on key and absolutely at the top of their game. Um, and, uh, and how that, and I think that's that emotional structure that has been what has drawn so many female audience, uh, so many in the female audience to me too, because I've always been more interested in those characters and the relationships and everything than in spaceships or car races or shootouts and that sort of thing, but rather the the human connection and uh, which goes back to my Stanislavski training uh, sure. originally at Carnegie. Uh, and, um, uh, and you know, that's what I've always striven for. Haven't always achieved it, but uh, you gotta, 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 gotta keep reaching what? for it.
0: Kenny, I want to leave it on the triumph of this 40th anniversary rather than getting to the tragedy, the final battle, and everything else. And I hope that, because this was fantastic, that you would come back and talk about alienation and and uh, some of your features, and that maybe we can continue the conversation and also your plans for V. But I, I do want to, uh, you have a new book out. I want to give you the I mean, chance this to one? tell
2: them, <laughs> That one. Wow. There it is. <laughs> right. Funny. You should mention, you know? <laughs> no. Tell, tell yeah.
0: us the Sherlock Holmes story.
2: Yeah, it's it's fun. Well, you know Holmes has been done to death, but uh, I, I had I, I was reading uh, Conan Doyle one night, and I thought, God, this is a great character. Wouldn't it be funny if he got bored at the end of the 18th, 1800s and decided to to pickle himself, being the master chemist that he was, uh, and so that he could uh, essentially hibernate. One of his friends was H. G. Wells, he uh, who had written this thing about the time machine, and and Wells uh, and, and Holmes knew that there was no time machines, but he did also knew that that he was a master chemist and he might be able to figure it out. And that's what has happened in the book. And he wakes up in the contemporary San Francisco and he is exactly the Conan Doyle character, the same eccentric, egocentric, cocaine addicted, sexist genius. But his brilliant deductions are now, uh, because he's 100 years out of sync, sometimes his brilliant deductions are laughable, or sometimes they're really dangerous. Oh, my goodness. uh, And his uh, his female, uh, Dr. Watson, also, he can't quite understand her. (laughs)
0: female it it, it sounds like a wonderful companion piece to time after time nick Myers. well it's it's
2: yeah it's it's similar in that respect i suppose but it was really really fun to do and what was particularly fun was we also did an audio edition of this uh with uh with uh, just a great cast of, of players and i had them recorded so that they could hear each other while we were doing it so it yeah. was like a, it was like going back to my radio play roots yeah. you know
4: you mean so that they could act together that, oh that, <laughs> yes
3: what a concept
4: yes <laughs> you yeah. know
2: and it was great because there, there were there were a couple of the days of the recording where we had actors scattered over five cities and eight time zones wow uh, and but they could all hear each other and they were like kids in a candy store they said my god we never get to Act like this, you know, yeah. and hear each other and play off of each other. And uh, so the audio edition is, is really, really fun as well. And and both <laughs> are
0: on sale now. Uh, you yes, can get it on are. Amazon or Barnes & Noble. those Buildings that have just books in them that used to be around town. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, those. That's that's awesome. Well, I have to tell you, we, you have such an amazing career that one podcast will not contain it. So. I'm sorry. I'm
4: sorry. Your show, you're so shy that we had to sort of pull all this stuff out of you. Oh, well, you know, I don't hope have I,
5: that much work to talk about. You know,
2: I kept <laughs> watching for one of the three of you to go. Okay, okay, okay. We get it. We got no. it. We heard that story before. Let's not go no. there. You know, but, we are uh, we are uh, a
4: more machine. Yeah, oh, like, I want to do a whole hour just
5: on cliffhangers, which we haven't. Oh. oh my goodness!
2: <laughs> that was a that was a Freddie Silverman, uh, Ashley. And we could there's certainly stuff to talk about. Not that you can actually see part of it on on really bad video versions on YouTube, but uh, uh, the the Universal has never bothered to try to make a uh, DVD out of it because there were so many people they have to pay so oh many cash, cast, you know. But uh, but yes, I, listen, I'm game to come back and talk to you guys anytime. And We'd love that. That uh, would be
0: great. That my would pleasure. be great, Kenny. Thank you so much for your, your time today. And we'll look forward to talking more soon.
2: Aaron, Mark, Ashley, I appreciate the chance. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks so much. Take, take, take care. care. Bye-bye.
0: Well, we promised you a great interview with Ken Johnson. I think we delivered. I hope we did. And uh, we've already talked to Ken about coming back to the show uh, to finish our conversation. About why he wasn't involved with the final battle, the TV series, and of course, uh, the you know he 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 hit lightning in a bottle again with um, Alien Nation. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about all those things, and we may even have a few more questions. We go back in time and talk about Bionic Woman and Six Million Dollar Man some more because we can't help ourselves. And cliffhangers. Know. And cliffhangers. Yes, that's, that's right. right. Cliffhangers. <laughs> and was it sha- Shadow Chasers or Shadow Hunter?
4: Uh, I don't, don't remember that, that one.
0: And of I course understand. he also uh, directed Steel with Shaquille O'Neal. That's right. So that's right, that's um right. I think we're gonna want to talk oh, about that. Maybe the first time times. just as once, Kay, I'll let you ask about sports on this show. <laughs> just as once. <laughs> um <laughs> but uh, it'll 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 be really interesting. So uh it was really a, a, a delight to have him. And I hope I think we'll be doing more of these kind of interviews on Deck Seventy eight on these trek adjacent subjects. But and, and we're not really-
4: gonna share them on the Trek Experts anymore. We're not. This was your no, last no, no. chance. This was your so last We really chance. are.
0: We're the givers of pain and delight. Because <laughs> we're gonna give you pain, but then pain. when you pay the, the subscription fee, you get the delight of listening right. to these wonderful episodes on Deck Seventy Eight. Sometimes it'll just be us schmoozing talking about things we love. Side Star Trek and Jason Other times it'll be exclusive interviews with
4: sometimes them. it'll be us talking about things we hate. No, no. That's no.
5: true. <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> Things we love to hate because this show is all about that. That's better. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's true. The show? episode is coming. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. Honestly, um,
0: it's uh, after I retire, I hope. an Howard the Duck so, episode in the future. Yeah. By the way, I, I, I continue to be amazed by some of the uh, feedback we get on that 101 list. It's, it's pretty crazy. And I love some of the stupidity. like uh (laughs) well that's okay next
4: uh the next uh special holiday special we do it's going to be the 101 best dalmatians
0: (laughs) joel randolph 101 (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh it's so funny but um but you know i uh, i'm really grateful because people really are emotionally invested in it and that's all you can hope for and i don't know how we're going to top it uh next year on the holiday special because I, I do think i'd come back for the holiday special even after i retire i think i'd come back so basically the, for
5: like a quarter of the season at least
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know it depends what the subject is i mean somebody said 101 ships but i don't think that's interesting i don't no, think, no, you know there aren't 101 ships but not only that; it's just like it's a visual thing. It's a visual Plus, thing. I'm, you can't... I'm not into starship porn. I like the writing, the characters, the stories. You know, I mean, I, I like a good-looking starship as much as anybody. But <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't like. Uh, I don't know if that's that's something a we could really on ship on ship action. You know Easing. what that is? That's an episode. That's one episode. Like maybe right. ten greatest starships or something. Like we could get away with an episode, but I don't think that's a holiday special. No. The holiday special is a very special kind of special. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying me, to go for the I, bread the bread service. I know, I know. Right now. I,
4: I tried for such a special.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, anyway, we're, we're so glad that you joined us for this special Encore presentation. Kenneth Johnson on Deck 78. We hope you'll join us next week for an all-new episode. We want to thank the great Mark Rivera who's making us sound so good, and who you make possible his work is possible through being a subscriber to, um, Terksverse Plus. and Peter Holmstrom. Thank you very much, uh, for, uh, the clips and for uh, producing the show. And, uh, we thank you uh, who come back every week and listen to this nonsense. So, uh, thank you listeners. We appreciate the support. So, uh, and if you want to follow more, you want to share your thoughts about seeing V for the first time, you can do that on, um, uh, Instagram or uh, Twitter at uh, Inglorious Trek or our Facebook page at Inglorious Trek Sports. And one of the things I realized we didn't really do is actually talk about, like from our perspective, what it was like watching V and why it was so special. And maybe that's a future episode. I don't know. Um, yeah. and, and what we thought of Final Battle and TV show Ham Tyler, Michael Ironside. <laughs> remember <laughs> Ham Tyler? Yeah. I remember you, you know, the thing about Ham Tyler, Ham on Eggs Tyler. Um, was he's named after meat. Like the only he was the only good thing about that show for the season half season, and then they did this purge where they got rid of all the characters, and then it got darker and more interesting, but they got rid of Ham Tyler. It's like the yeah. one good thing it's like why would you do that? I don't know. Why would you do that? Why would you get rid of? <laughs> of I know. Hold the mail. so uh, anyway, uh, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time. so on behalf of all three of us. Keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78. Available now by subscribing at trexpertsplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. This episode features an exclusive freewheeling conversation about Battlestar Galactica 1978. By your command, here's a sneak peek let's do it okay ready ready for the holiday special here we go 10 best galactica characters starting with 10 beryllian Noman at (laughs) 10 okay number nine number nine come on Uh, who's number nine number nine is cyrus bellaby no she's not in the top 10 come on he is no, you know Lloyd Bachner from the Eastern Alliance. No,
4: I hate I hate <laughs> the freaking Bauchner Eastern
0: Alliance. The, Eastern <laughs> Alliance. It's the
5: stupidest Adama, thing
4: oh,
0: ever. I'm okay, okay, come on. Number nine. Okay, it's it's it's, it's 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 Green Bean. Yeah. Ed Beagley Jr. Oh my
4: Lieutenant God, Lieutenant Green Bean yeah, uh, what was his name? Come on,
0: Green Bean. Green, Green, Green Bean. Green Bean. Yeah, Green Bean. Green Bean. Mm-hmm. Okay, number eight. Sheba. No, Sarah Rush. The, the rigel <laughs> she's the one who goes launch all vipers okay we're gonna get the sheba right okay so
4: okay so number seven number seven is the chief ovion
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it can't be the singers it's love love no love, they're love. higher up okay because well, <laughs> we're getting now we're getting because you got to have countably in the top five yeah you got to have adama don't tell you who me who we gotta Kennedy, have starbuck
4: sheba yeah. Right? What about, what about Serena? Oh, Serena. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Apollo. You gotta have Jane maybe? Seymour. Apollo, yeah. maybe? Eh, I guess. Starbuck, uh,
0: Imperious Leader. Yes. Forrun, the <laughs> computer. Baltar. Oh, yeah. How can you got Baltar? Baltar? you gotta have Baltar. Baltar. Right? Gotta have Baltar. Baltar. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. This gotta be a holiday uh, special. Give me more wait, time. Wait, for wait, this. wait,
5: wait, wait. You guys, you've listed all of these names, and I haven't heard Janeway. Pass. Yeah,
4: what's going you're, on here
3: you're funny <laughs> what about
4: the daggett you gotta have the daggett no you don't Muffy, no you don't, no, you, don't. No, you gotta no, have you commander don't. kane
0: and he, oh yeah you gotta, you gotta have, have commander, commander kane. kane
4: and you don't have to have boxy no you
5: don't oh
0: yeah, you no don't. you don't need that like like boxy need, uh,
5: wesley crusher you but you need, think, a you think, you need yeah, Athena.
0: You, you got need think Athena think because we were all like uh, 10 years old at the time. I, I the didn't like Boxy
4: ever. when I was on, but I think it was more like I was jealous that this kid like got to <sighs> hang out on those sets and like be in that show. I, I that didn't like cool. that kid. And you nah, were rooting against him in a uh, never ending story.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't like that. He was the impetus for all these stories. Like he, he hit it. He, he, um, Hit out on the on the shuttle, so he he goes down to the gun on Ice Planet Zero because he was hiding on the shuttle. It's like he wanted on. to see
4: Muffy wants to see snow. Yeah, <laughs> oh, oh, I'll show Muffy on. snow.
0: <laughs> and then fire in the you know he's in the center of the action again at Fire in, fire in space. It's like I don't. No, like they kind of rode him out of the show by the second half though. He, he well, and Athena
4: in also. I loved Athena. Were, yeah. yeah. Well, who didn't? Athena and Serena were my two
0: go-to and Apparently Don Henley didn't love her enough; he didn't marry her. Oh, but oh, uh, oh, oh, too soon. Yeah. Um, but uh, what else? Um, yeah. So I mean, you know, it's just like look at the way we talk about the show. It's almost like uh, *Inglorious Galactic* spurts. <laughs> crazy. I don't know. I don't know. But let's. But you know, there's a legacy here because. So subscribe today at TrekspursPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck Seventy Eight. Fire the Rockets.